I don't I, I don't even know if we, we should be admitting to what you guys were up to. Well, I'm assuming we'll cut this whole thing out, right? I don't want any evidence <laughs> of my indiscretion. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, aggressive moderator of Nigerian spam accounts on the world-famous I'd Buy That for a Dollar Facebook group. I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles. It's a beautiful sunny day, and I am the spark, and co-host Sean is here to fan my flames. I'm so ready. And I am co-host... Peter, do you feel left out Pe- now? <laughs> I've been feeling left out for so long. Oh. Ever since you guys were... All right. Dr- you can fan the that, flames, too, a little bit. You guys don't even know. During that brief time towards the end of season one, where you guys were both podcasting from the same room and I was separate, I was so lonesome, I could cry. Oh. <laughs> I believe it. A time will well, come soon where you and I can podcast from the same room, Peter, and then Sean will be lonesome. I haven't even got to my title yet. What I do? Who the heck are you? <laughs> I am co-host Peter, and I am the differentiator between loose ends, loose fur, and loose joints. <laughs> <laughs> Which one had the best jams? Oh, man, it's a toss-up between loose joints and loose ends because arthur russell got some pretty good jams all right mary fucks kill <laughs> <laughs> let's see that's a good one that's a good one sorry to the parents right. out there for the potty language <laughs> yeah we got graphic here i'm just riled up today i'm riled up today gang and i got a record he's got that spark yeah why are you riled up I'm just cutting loose. You can't see it, but I'm dancing because I brought loose ends, a little spice. Just a little, just enough, a little spice. Just what we need here. And we're going to we're going to kick it up right out of the gate with Let's Rock, which on my version of the album, which we'll get to later, is side 2, track 4. Let's Rock. <laughs> Tonight. 
really funny with this one on that track in particular. Right out the gate, there are some sounds that make it feel like it's going to be dated, but then it just jams. Oh, yeah. There, there's so many moments like that on this record where you feel like, oh, I don't really like the way this is going. And then they just they just tweak the mix a little bit, add in some other instruments, and you're just like, nope, I'm sold. Never mind. This rules. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what we're listening to this record like is like straight to start to finish. Yeah, I'm feeling it. I guess I, I kind of feel like this is a halfway point, I guess, both uh, just sonically and chronologically between maybe like the Evelyn Champagne King album we did and the Midnight Star album we covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some similarities to a handful of records we did. The The production style in here also reminds me a lot of the Kashif produced stuff, which we have discussed at length on multiple episodes. <laughs> yeah, it has a similar kind of stripped back sound but it's not really if you listen closer there's a lot of different things going on just like very quick and stabby like Mm -hmm. quick and stabby and it's all about the texture and the production on this record and just the kind of mood that it sets because there's there's not really tracks on here that are like super high energy floor fillers you know it's all got kind of a laid back vibe some of it's a little bit faster laid back and some of it's super laid back but it all just fits together as an album really well true i didn't know this at all other than i think uh, jeremy's brought loose ends up but i totally missed this one so i have a, a fun fact of my history with this record i know the exact date that i bought this record which is rare i bought this record on thursday March 14th, 2013. Wow. Well, that's, are you me? <laughs> no, not quite. But is that because the reason I know that is because go ahead. What's, what's your guess of why do I know that date? I, th- I was thinking it had something to do with your daughter being born. But now that I think about it, that was that right? No. Or was she born in May? She was born in March. She was born on March 17th. Okay. So this was like right before my daughter was born but it was also the day after uh the blues control show that i booked in kalamazoo michigan on wednesday march 13th which is for some reason still listed on their uh drag city records profile as upcoming shows from an a uh, <laughs> at the 411 bio, club yeah a bio posted <laughs> in uh, 2012 so <laughs> people seem to be still hyped on blues controls 2012 through 2013 tour dude that's all people are talking about but yeah anyway so i booked that show it was great that band's great if you want to check them out and they they stayed at my house that night and we had time the next day and i took them record digging and one thing i really liked to do whenever i could with an out-of-town band is take them to the legendary harvey's basement in kalamazoo michigan which for the majority of our listeners who don't know is a retired gentleman in Kalamazoo who is, sells tens of thousands of records out of his basement with the majority of which are all 50 cents a piece. And if you have his phone number, you can call and make an appointment and go dig through, which, you know, it's mostly crap, but if you know how to dig, there's some amazing stuff. Oh, it's a glorious, including loose ends, a little spice that I got. I still have the authentic <laughs> handwritten 50 cent sticker on it. But yeah, I was digging with Blues Control, and they pulled this one out, and were like, do you have this record? Because this is an incredible record that we've been like turning people onto for a while. Bought it, and 
ever since then throughout my years of being a record seller anytime this record was in the shop if someone came through and asked for a recommendation of just what should i listen to if this was in there i was going to recommend it to them pretty much so i've been selling this record for a long time now yeah and i somehow missed it even though i worked beside you (laughs) i know (laughs) (laughs) maybe i just assumed that i'd already ranted about it to you (laughs) (laughs) you want to spare me yeah well it's a pleasant surprise now Sean, you were the one who showed this to me. I don't know if you, you probably don't remember, but I remember this very vividly for some reason. It was when we were on tour, some, I remember it so vividly, I don't remember where we were, but (laughs) we were in a record shop and I was like, "Uh, I'm not finding anything. There's nothing good here. And then you just start like (laughs) rifling through at a mind numbing speed. The, The speed at which Sean rifles through records is truly miraculous and <laughs> he only he only has to see the top of the spine to know what album it is <laughs> yeah in motion too like so he's doing that and like albums are just like popping up while he's still rifling and there's like a small <laughs> pile of records there and he's like this one this one this one this one he's telling me all about all the different ones and this one jumped out at me right away because of the cover and then once I listen to it, it rules. It does rule. And I got to say, the cover has always been one of my favorites. There's just something about it. The color scheme, the angles and everything. It's just such a dope album cover. I don't know how you can look at this and not immediately think like, oh, I need to at least hear this. I'm a sucker for anything with a pyramid on the cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well. You must, have really, you must have really liked our Earth, Wind, and Fire album then, too. Yeah, I did. What about it? You got something to say about it, Peter? I thought it had a pyramid on the cover. (laughs) Maybe I'm wrong. You know, I'm just going to go out and say, I can't think of a single record with a pyramid on the cover that is not good. That might be a new rule of record collecting. If it's a dollar and there's a pyramid on the cover, just fucking buy it. It's probably I'm going to prove you wrong within five minutes after we get done airing this episode. It won't take long. All right. I I don't think you can. I think I will. <laughs> I'm going to pretend whatever you find is still dope. I will find that hill and I will die on it, sir. Dang. He's going he's gonna to whip out moolah, woe ye demons possessed. <laughs> so if you're a DJ, you have to get this album if you don't have it already. It is, in my mind, the perfect uh, album to have in your back pocket when you're DJing. It's great for DJing. It's great for, you know, summertime barbecues. It's great for when you want to listen to music that rules. It's just a great record. Well, let's do a little bit of history here. The kind of interesting thing I found is all the histories begin with them meeting and forming the band. And I had a really difficult time finding any information on any of the main trio before they formed the band. Though I did find one interview with Steve Nichol where he gives a little bit of information. So as far as he goes prior to forming the band, he's from South London, but he grew up in Peckham in the United Kingdom for our listeners who are... Uh, less globally savvy, we'll say. <laughs> I'm I'm making fun of our American listeners. 
<laughs> yeah, I picked up on that. <laughs> the, he started trumpet at age 10 and piano shortly after that. He was a model and also a football player and stated that he believes he would have been a professional football player if he decided to go down that path, but he didn't. He decided to go to the Guildhall School of Music. Would he have been a tight end? (laughs) (laughs) Peter's asking those hard questions tonight. (laughs) I'm doing that nod right now. (laughs) So at the Guildhall School of Music is where Steve meets Jane Eugene at an after party, there was some type of modeling event or fashion event. And at the after party, Steve is chatting with Jane Eugene. And they're both like, yeah, I'm a songwriter. And then Steve's like, yeah, I'm a songwriter too. And they're like, we should make a band. So they did. We're talking 1981 at this point. Usually when I've had that experience... Uh... It turns out they're not a songwriter. It's a good thing that <laughs> they were a songwriter. <laughs> oh, Lord. But they kept adding members while they're doing this. And at one point, there are apparently 11 members in the band. And then Jane and Steve fired everyone else <laughs> other than them again. And they brought on bassist Carl McIntosh and became the core trio that is Loose Ends as we know them. Yeah, so they're just a trio. They are, as far as who is Loose Ends, they are a trio. There's a lot of auxiliary instrument people on these albums, though. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh, before we go any further, I'm going to play another jam. Let's do that. I'm ready. I'm going to play the jam called choose me choo choo choose me and as <laughs> i previously said and will say again on my version choose me is side 1 track 2 and i'll explain more on that even later <laughs> so much foreshadowing yeah. what could he possibly be referencing stay tuned to find out <laughs> Thank you. 
One thing I've always loved specifically about this record is the drum sounds that they have programmed on here. There's a lot of kind of unique tones and drumbeat approaches that they use that really kind of set this group apart from a lot of their contemporaries of this time period. Yeah, you know, I couldn't place my finger on what exactly was different in their approach compared to others, but that might be it. You might have uh, unlocked what's just making them stand out a little bit. Yeah, they use a lot more of those like drum machine tom sounds and you know, it, they're they're doing more stuff than just your typical kick and snare and hi-hat that most drum beats are based around. It's a it's an interesting approach. It works. This is their first album, right? This is their first album. And I I think there's a few things that make this band different. As you heard, I'm sure at the beginning of that track was some lovely sax that was the American jazz sax man Bob Malak. Malach? Malak? Who knows? There's no way we could know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. Only there was a way to find out. Guess where he's from? He's from Philly. Uh, Where you're at, Sean, Dad. I'm right there. He's, He's Sean's neighbor. You know, him and a million and a half other people. I bring him up because he represents two things that I think make this band unique and awesome in their sound, which is A, the jazz influence that you'll hear in their melodies and in the harmonies. You get some like interesting kind of modal shifts and you get some pretty complex melodies going on at times, which is not the case for a lot of soul music. And B, you have, I don't, well, I guess I did mention where they're from, but they're a British soul group, and this album was recorded in Philadelphia with Philly soul producer Nick Martinelli. Okay. So there's a handful of Philly soul kind of guys on this album, and you get this meshing of sounds and influence between uh, British soul and Philly soul. There's also some strong like rock and new wave elements mixed in here too, which I was kind of picking up on more recently listening to this record than I had previously. I mean, obviously there's a few tracks on here with some pretty ripping guitar parts in there. But I think specifically this band pairs really well with a lot of the more electronic oriented new wave groups like OMD or Art of Noise, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. There was, uh, you know, before we, when I was checking this out, before we went into it, there were some specific things I had in mind that, yeah, it wasn't like soul or funk of the time period. There were other artists of the time period that I was thinking of and now I'm blanking on who they were, but. You're right. It it it, it does seem like a, a different formula than a lot of funk and soul of the time. Yeah, and I believe that's at least partially a result of them meeting in, you know, highfalutin music school. So they have that underpinning of, uh, you know, sophistication going on in their music. I would say, combined with the different regional influences. You have a totally interesting approach, uh, as Sean pointed out, with the use of 
programmed drums. Yeah, I guess maybe maybe even groups like Tears for Fears on like a less bombastic level. Yeah, for sure. A little more stripped down. Yeah. So jumping back into their timeline, they were signed by Virgin Records in 1981, which once again, banned in the early 80s, just forms and gets signed. I don't know what was going on in that time period that you put together a band and you're just automatically signed to a huge label, but that's what happened. I think the whole nation was just collectively Reaganing at that point, so everything was good. <laughs> oh, my. Would that would have been uh, when the UK was Thatchering? Or not, Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm not super up on my British politics timeline, but... <laughs> it sounds about right. Yeah, close enough. All right. So, yeah, they're signed to Virgin Records. They get signed to a singles contract. They put out three singles with three different producers. None of them chart. None of them really catch on. And that's when they get paired with Nick Martinelli in Philadelphia. And they fly over here to Philly to record this album. They had the option to cancel the contract after the three non-charting singles but decided to give them a shot at a full album anyways. Well, thanks, Richard Branson. Yeah, right? that was That's nice the owner, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Richard Branson. Branson Nailed Branson. It. You got it. <laughs> so this this record is his gift to the world. That's... <laughs> of, of, yeah. of, of, of all the stuff that he released, it's this and yeah. uh, Faust. <laughs> yeah, most notable for... <laughs> green lighting loose ends to drop this hot record in 1983 right four or five it depends <laughs> all three of all of the above just kept getting right. released in different ways all right i foreshadowed enough it's time <laughs> for this super tasty nugget not really now it's way too built up <laughs> so the album was released drop that nugget <laughs> album was released in 83 in the uk but was not released in America at that time. And in the interim period after this album was released and started climbing the charts in the UK, they recorded their biggest hit song of their career, Hanging on a String, which they then decided to put on an American release of this album. Yeah, they added Hanging on a String to the American version of the album, and they took off a song called Feel So Right Now, which is a good baby-making jammer with some kind of Wes Montgomery guitar on it. I was kind of sad once I heard the song because I got intrigued. I'm like, what is this song that wasn't on my album? Mm -hmm. It's a good one, too. So if you find the UK version, it's also good. <laughs> yeah, and then they followed that with their second record, which never even got a U.S. release. So with just my like limited firsthand knowledge through digging, I always thought their third record was their second record, because those are like the only two that you ever see by this band digging here in the States. Oh, see, I didn't even know that the second record didn't come out in America, but it kind of makes sense because... The second record in the UK is the one that actually has hanging on a string. Well, thank you for using that string to tie up those loose ends. <laughs> wow. 
All right. <laughs> you did it, Peter. <laughs> Truly. A jumbled mess. Wow. <laughs> this album reached number 43 on the Billboard charts in America, made it to number 13 in the UK, and number one in the US R&B charts. Slam dunk. Yeah, and they are the uh, first British band to top the US R&B charts, right? Yeah, and I don't know for sure, but I did hear in an interview with them that they were the first black artists to be as big as they were from the UK in America. Mm. Yeah, I guess Hot Chocolate weren't you know they they had like a couple songs that hit in the states but they were bigger in the uk when i guess hot chocolate were also interracial an interracial band i don't know if that would else also make a difference i was also going to say i feel like hot chocolate has to have been an influence on this group oh for sure both being those uk soul groups just a few years removed Mm mm-hmm yeah Loose Ends hit it big with this album. Uh, They ended up making four more albums after this before the original trio disbanded in 1990. Oh, wow. They were going, they were going to the nineties just, just barely, (laughs) but (laughs) they made it to 1990, but they occasionally do reunions. Uh, Carl McIntosh continued with a version of the band for a while which was kind of interesting because he was the third added on from the original two. And then more recently, Jane Eugene has been touring the U.S. with a U.S.-based version of the band, Mm. along with, I believe, all three, I want to say, have been putting out solo material off and on through these last 30-plus years since 1990. Right on. And uh, a couple of them have moved into a lot of like production work too, right? That's true. I believe Steve Nicole uh, specifically got more into the production end of things. That seems to be the case for a lot of 80s musicians from this time period because so many of them just, you know, fell off the charts towards the, the mid to late 80s. But it seemed like, yeah, a lot of them just easily rebranded into more studio work and made it big that way. Except for Nick Martinelli, who got arrested for distributing cocaine and then quit playing music altogether. (laughs) Whoa. That's me tying up his loose end. (laughs) Let's let's play Hanging on a String. You can only get this on the U.S. version of this album. If you're in the U.K., you got to get their second album if you want this song. Hanging by a string here with you. We're talking track one, side one, kicking off the album with this. So long for you. 
I went into on this one. I stumbled on an audio engineer forum of some sort where somebody posted this song and they were like, what's going on with the production on this song? I love it. It's crazy. And then a few posts down was an engineer who actually worked on their third album and was like, well, I didn't do this song but here's likely what's going on, and he describes this crazy amount of processing, this like convoluted process to create the sounds that you know you're hearing on this, which are how would you describe them, Peter? Jumbled, but in a really groovy way. Yeah, like, like it. It almost confuses me to listen to it, and yet I keep nodding my head as I do. As someone who works all on computers mixing now and how you can like just pile up effects and processes nowadays, even I was shocked at how much processing is going on here and the fact that it wasn't on a computer. They were like running it through these crazy machines. Blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah, like that that guitar note that kind of jumps out like a bird squawking here and there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really catches your attention. That's always been one of my favorite tracks on the album, even before I knew that it was the hit single. In fact, I own that song on 45, 12 inch, and LP. Dang. Yeah, that one I've played a lot DJing. And then uh, the other track, Tell Me What You Want, was the other one that I always played a bunch, which we haven't played on this episode, but it's on the Spotify playlist. Ooh, what else is on there? I'll tell you what else is on there. There's all kinds of good stuff. There's a little over two hours of mostly 80s funk and new wave and stuff similar to Loose Ends, either inspired by it or maybe contemporary things, if you want to dig in deeper. Starting off with the first artist that I thought of as a good comparison to this group, Soul to Soul another 80s uk 
funk crossover laid back kind of maybe even like a little bit hip-hop influence too yeah they were like later 80s i think they went into the 90s yeah definitely definitely you know again i'm sure there was some influence going on that we don't even know of between those groups also put some artists on here like debarge melba moore doing a fleetwood mac cover blue peter's mind by including a fleetwood mac song on I'm one of these still, playlists i'm still checking my reality over here that sean hartman <laughs> touched something that fleetwood mac was involved in uh another late 80s funk artist that we definitely got to cover on the podcast at some point alexander o'neill is on here plus artists that we have covered like jody watley and midnight star the isley brothers put a five star track on there lakeside cameo the time and then some new wave stuff like i mentioned omd the system sade it's a good playlist you can find it on spotify just search i'd buy that podcast all one word to find this playlist as well as every other season two accompanying playlist something that we haven't at least that i haven't noticed that we've featured that is noticeable on some tracks on this album that you mentioned the isley brothers kind of reminded me a little bit of the album we covered by them recently is the guitar shredding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's got to be some Ernie Isley influence going on with that. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't get too much info on the guitars, but it's got Herb Smith on guitars and also Ron Jennings did some guitars. I'm not familiar with those names, so I can't say who did what or what they were involved in. That's That's too much research for me. <laughs> boy doesn't get paid enough to do that kind of research that's too busy grooving <laughs> it's spring baby mm-hmm. it truly is well I, I should mention at this juncture that uh if you'd like to help out the podcast and get some bonus content in return you can check out our patreon at patreon.com slash i'd buy that podcast just had some new additions. Tom and Wallace just signed up shortly before we re recorded this episode. Thank you so much. You can check that out and support us at the $1, $5, or $20 tier. Get all kinds of bonus content in return. So once again, patreon.com slash podcast. There's also the Facebook group that Sean aggressively moderates that... Uh... You know, if you're a record dork and you're looking for your people, we got we got your people in this group here. It's a bunch of record dorks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if you're on there to uh, tell us about some great deals on sunglasses or amazing ways to make money from home, we respect the hustle, but we will delete your content. True. Unless the way to make money from home is selling records on Discogs or something, right? <laughs> then, yeah, then, then we can talk for hours. <laughs> Peter Cook, did you see the samples this thing's on? I didn't. Ooh, please tell me. Well, I just got uh, some samples from Hanging on a String. Wiz Khalifa and Big Daddy <laughs> Kane both sampled it. Together? Same track? Different tracks. Oh, okay. Don't be silly. It's and possible that that could have happened. Yeah, it's not impossible. <laughs> I know they're like 30 years apart. <laughs> <laughs> this song also had a resurgence, apparently, in 2008 
Because it was featured in the Grand Theft Auto 4 video game in some manner, so... Oh, yeah, it was on one of the radio stations. I forgot about that. Are you a Grand Theft 4 uh, player, Sean? Uh, I was at one point in my life. In 2008, I'm guessing? <laughs> Somewhere around those times. Probably a few years later, because I never play video games when they're new. <laughs> Fair enough. Well... I'm going to go play outside because it's nice out, and I'm done talking about loose ends. Go listen to it. Agreed. Yeah. yeah, that's my final thought as well. What are you doing? Just go put on this record. Yeah, and if you don't have this record, just start going to the thrift stores until you find it. You'll find it. <laughs> I mean, it's not, I wouldn't say that this record is plentiful, but if you're persistent, you will find a copy, and you probably won't even pay that much money for it. You're welcome. Well, if they aren't convinced yet, what are we going to leave them with to try to sell them on this? Final pitch. Ooh. Final pitch is a total curveball pitch. The title track, A Little Spice, that is mostly instrumental and a very kind of off-kilter jam with some maybe some Latin influence in the rhythm I'm hearing. It's a, mm-hmm. It's a strange one. Yeah, I thought it was going to be all instrumental, and eventually some vocals come in well into the track. Yeah, we probably won't get to the vocals, but just enjoy the jam and enjoy your beautiful spring. I am and was co-host Jeremy. I am, was, and shall be co-host Sean. I am he as you are me as you are we, and we are all together. And we are all Peter Cook. (laughs) We are all Peter Cook. (laughs) Goodbye. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Side two, track two, a little spice. Goodbye. Not too much spice. guys find it funny that this album is a little spice and there's a song called tell me what you want i think that they predicted the spice girls Ooh. oh wow